Welcome back to the UConn IM Podcast. This is your host, Rob Harmon. I'm one of the chief medical residents here at UConn, and I am very excited for this year. Before we get to any content, a quick disclaimer. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. This week, we'll be taking a break from our pulmonary critical care mini-series to kick off this year's ambulatory series, starting with the topic of vision loss in primary care. Let's start off by walking through some background information. When we think about vision loss, we can categorize based on severity with mild vision loss being those with visual acuity between 2030 to 2070 or with a visual field of less than 30 degrees. Moderate vision loss, including those with visual acuity between 2080 and 2160 and severe vision loss, also called legal blindness, being anyone with central visual acuity of 20 to 200 or a visual field of 20 degrees or less. We measure visual acuity with the Snellen test. When it comes to prevalence, vision loss affects roughly 37 million Americans with an incidence that increases with age starting at age 50 and peaking around the age of 80. Although this may sound grim, the good news is that there are treatment options that can either prevent or delay vision loss due to some of the most common pathologies. What pathology specifically? Well, the most common causes of vision loss in the aging population are age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, cataracts, glaucoma, and diabetic retinopathy. I think it's helpful to talk through some of the pathophysiology here. Age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, is caused by the deposition of drusen, which are made up of lipids and protein, onto the retina. As it progresses, AMD can present with increasing size of drusen, geographic atrophy, and formation of new vasculature, ultimately progressing to wet or proliferative AMD. Patients will typically present with gradual onset central vision loss with difficulty, especially at night. They may also experience decreased vision, scotoma, also known as blind spots, and metamorphosia, spots with distortion, may also be present. Cataracts occur due to opacification of the lens in the setting of fibrosis of the membranous structure of the lens capsule. These patients present with intolerance to glare, halos in the visual field, and painless progressive loss of visual acuity. Patients with monocular cataracts may experience diplopia. In glaucoma, we separate patients into two distinct presentations, acute closure or open-angle glaucoma. In angle closure glaucoma, patients typically present with acute onset intense pain with associated conjunctival injection and often with mildly dilated pupils that react poorly to light, whereas patients with open angle glaucoma typically experience an insidious and slowly progressive vision loss that starts peripherally. Generally, patients with this variant of glaucoma are asymptomatic until more advanced stages and will often present once central vision is involved with decreased visual acuity, sensitivity to light and or dark, glare disability, and night blindness. Patients with diabetic retinopathy can also be separated into two groups, proliferative and non-proliferative. This distinction is made based on neovascularization of the retina, which is present in proliferative and absence in non-proliferative. 
Patients can develop macular edema, which can lead to the loss of visual acuity. It typically has a gradual onset with clinical courses spanning periods of months to years. Patients can present with specific complications that occur due to diabetic retinopathy. For instance, retinal detachment may present as a shadow or a curtain falling through the visual field, whereas vitreous hemorrhage, which occurs as a sequelae of proliferative disease, can present as a showering of floaters in the visual field. Macular edema, on the other hand, presents as blurry vision that cannot be corrected with eyewear. Now that we know what we're looking for, let's discuss the physical exam. As previously mentioned, we can start by checking for visual impairment using the Snellen chart. This can be done during an annual wellness visit and can be incorporated into the rooming process. We should also be performing an examination with an ophthalmoscope. However, keep in mind that historically the sensitivity of this exam in the primary care setting is pretty low which is largely attributed to the fact that most primary care offices are not performing dilated eye exams. If we were able to perform an adequate dilated eye exam, what exactly would we be looking for? Well, in AMD, we may be able to see drusen or lipid deposition. In diabetic retinopathy, we may see neovascularization over the optic disc, dot and blot hemorrhages, flame hemorrhages, microaneurysms, or cotton wool spots. And in cataracts, you may see cloudy, extinct, shady, or dull red reflex. The exam should also include measurement of intraocular pressure, evaluation of the optic disc to assess for increased cup-to-disc ratio, and automated visual field tests, which are all necessary for the diagnosis of glaucoma. These tests would be performed by an ophthalmologist or an optometrist in the office. With all this in mind, if we have a patient with vision loss, it should ultimately be referred to either optometry or ophthalmology. For a more concrete rule, though, Ophthalmology should be consulted non-urgently when there is advanced disease, co-management of systemic disease, or surgical intervention required, but should be consulted emergently, within the hour actually, if patients have persistent, painful monocular vision loss with conjunctival injection, as this is concerning for angle closure glaucoma, or when patients have painless vision loss, which could be concerning for central retinal artery occlusion, retinal detachment, central retinal vein occlusion, or ischemic optic neuropathy. Let's move on to treatment options. For diabetic retinopathy, the primary answer is going to be proper glycemic control, as this can help slow the progression of diabetic retinopathy. Now, outside of glycemic control, Phenofibrates actually have been shown to reduce progression of diabetic retinopathy irrespective of cholesterol levels. Patients should undergo dilated eye exams to assess for diabetic retinopathy once a year and patients with known retinopathy or once every two years if there is stable disease. Photocoagulation can help to prevent progression from non-proliferative to proliferative retinopathy. Although the mechanism is somewhat unclear, it is thought that through creating multiple burns in the retina, proliferation can be prevented by addressing microaneurysms. It may also reduce the functioning areas of the retina, decreasing oxygen utilization and thereby decreasing drive for revascularization. If a patient, however, has progressed to the proliferative stage, anti-VEGF agents are critical in the treatment plan, used in combination with photocoagulation. In open-angle glaucoma, treatment is mainly directed at reducing intraocular pressure. This is achieved using medicated eye drops such as topical beta blockers, prostaglandin analogs, and carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. We typically reach for prostaglandin analogs as they are dosed once daily and they carry a benign side effect profile. Beta blockers are the most cost-effective, however, they do come with a side effect profile due to systemic absorption. Systemic absorption occurs as mucosal absorption allows for bypassing of hepatic metabolism. 
Some patients ultimately may require surgical intervention for their glaucoma or cataracts, for instance. If our patients require surgery, are there specific preoperative considerations? In short, no, not really. Eye surgery is low-risk intervention, therefore, unless there are specific medical indications, there are no preoperative medical tests that we need to perform for these patients. We should be aware of the increased risk of alpha agonists, such as tamsulosin, with cataract surgery, though. These drugs can inhibit the preoperative dilation mydriatic drugs, ultimately leading to intraoperative floppy iris syndrome, where the iris is unable to dilate appropriately, which complicates the removal of lenses, increasing the risk of iris prolapse. Because of this, patients should hold alpha-1 antagonists for 4-7 to seven days leading up to their surgery. Outside of treatment options, there are some additional resources for our patients. If someone is determined to be legally blind, they may qualify for Social Security or other disability benefits. There are also assistive devices for patients with vision loss, such as handheld magnifiers, stand magnifiers, high-powered prismatic spectacles, and telemicroscopes. Some of these devices have the ability to magnify objects as much as 60 times. Additionally, there are special filters for eyewear to enhance contrast and reduce glare, which may be helpful with reading. Having gone through all of this, we can see how debilitating vision loss can be, especially in the elderly population. It can have a serious impact on the quality of life of our patients and is associated with an increased risk of fall, depression, can lead to loss of independence, and ultimately, all-cause mortality increase. Therefore, I hope that you take some of the information you learned here today back to your patients. Thank you all for tuning in. Until next time.